In the season of Epiphany this year at Kenilworth Union Church, Katie and Christine and Squire and I are preaching this rather eccentric sermon series. We're calling it Jesus' Grandmothers. So Matthew begins to tell his story of this carpenter from Nazareth by painting Jesus' genealogy. He lists 42 grandfathers of Jesus and five grandmothers. And so we're going to look at the grandmothers in Jesus' genealogy from the Gospel of Matthew. This is the beginning of Matthew's Gospel. An account of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Aram, and Aram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Selman, and Selman the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David, and David the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. And then I'll skip about 20 generations and get to the good part. Eliezer was the father of Matan, and Matan was the father of Jacob, and Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, who bore Jesus, the Messiah. Pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So I hope you all had a holiday of joy and recreation. Maybe you got some apt and timeless Christmas gifts and received and sent a stack of Christmas cards the size of War and Peace. Maybe you went high to go skiing or south to sun. And maybe you reconnected with family from near and from far. And maybe you are very glad that they've all returned to the places they came from. Because family can be a mixed and dubious blessing, can't it? I said to a friend right before the holiday, I said, so are you going to spend Christmas with relatives? And she said, no, I'd rather spend it with loved ones. <laughs> a little family of active toddlers was Christmas shopping, and he took a break to do McDonald's for lunch. And one of the kids was sobbing because he didn't get the toy he wanted, and his sister poured her Coke all over her brother's hamburger because he was stealing her french fries and the littlest one in a high chair fell flat on his face on the floor and the mother got up and roughly returned the toddler to his perch and she said, now sit down, shut up, and eat your Happy Meals. <laughs> and all of that wouldn't be so bad if it were just the nuclear family we had to contend with, right? There's all of these other relatives that we've never met. They died before we were even in this world. You know, the colorful great aunt who became the vivid star of every family legend by sailing through four or five husbands, or the great-grandfather who made the family fortune with mythic intelligence or lost it with dazzling ineptitude. All of these people we've never met, they make us who we are as well. It's not just the nuclear family who determines who we are. Ancestors too, distant and near, a pedigree. Your personal history predates your birth, and it will survive your demise because you too will become an ancestor some, to, to some distant descendant for good or for ill. The Jews know, know this. They know where they came from. 
And so throughout the Bible, the Hebrew and the Christian scriptures, there are all these genealogies littered through the pages of scripture from Genesis to Revelation. And I think littered is the right verb, right? Have you ever tried to make your way through the entire Bible, cover to cover, Genesis to Revelation, and stumbled over the begats, the list of begats, that curious Jacobean verb, begat. Still, we can learn something from them if we pay attention. In his gospel, Matthew wants to tell us where this curious carpenter from Nazareth came from. And he tells that story through the 42 heroes and scoundrels who preceded Jesus in his lineage. And three things I want to talk to you about this genealogy today. Can you handle a three-point sermon? First point, Matthew's genealogy is good theology but bad history. It can't be entirely, literally accurate. Luke has his own genealogy of Jesus in the third gospel, and they don't agree with each other. Luke gives us 77 ancestors of Jesus. Matthew gives us 42 grandfathers and five grandmothers. Luke leaves all the grandmothers out, and only 17 names are common to both lists. So one or both of them must be wrong. It's bad history, but good theology. And not only that, but Matthew tells us the story of genealogy not through Mother Mary, Jesus' literal mother, but through Joseph, who shares no DNA with Jesus if the rest of Matthew's story is to be believed. There's none, none of Joseph's blood running through Jesus' veins. And I think maybe what Matthew wants to tell us by painting Jesus' lineage that way is that it's our narrative DNA that makes a difference, not our physical DNA. It's not the blood in our veins. It's the stories in our hearts. Jesus knew these stories, right, of Abraham's faith and Isaac's obedience and David's courage and Ruth's compassion. That's what made Jesus who he was, not the blood in his veins, but the stories in his heart. That's why we teach our children about the heroes in our ancestry. We want them to reach up and to live up to those stories so that they can build stellar character. Stories in our hearts, not the blood in our veins. Point number one, Matthew's genealogy is good theology but bad history. Point number two, Matthew wants to tell us about the stealthy grace of God by which God brings about God's vast intention for this world. You know, there are so many scoundrels in Jesus' genealogy. They're not whom we expect to see in that lineage. It's a basket of deplorables. You know, there are Jacob the deceiver and Ruth the Gentile and Rahab the prostitute and several really wicked and dastardly Jewish kings, not to mention the last ancestor of them all, Mother Mary, an unwed teenage mother. And per perhaps what Matthew means to tell us through this royal but checkered pedigree is that God can use anything and anything to bring about God's vast intention. So history happens at this coincidence, this coherence, this me meeting of twisted human connivance and stealthy divine providence. And by that, by that meeting of stealthy providence and twisted connivance, God brings about the most perfect life that's ever been lived. Point number one, good theology, bad history. Point number two, the stealthy providence of God, which can use anything to bring about God's intention. And point number three, let's just be honest about it, right? Patriarchal prejudice. 
42 grandfathers, five grandmothers, that's the way the Jews did it. The lineage was passed down from father to son. The female part of the equation was shunted aside. And unfortunately, the Christian church has inherited this patriarchal prejudice. Western Christianity, says Karen Armstrong, never really recovered from its neurotic misogyny. I love that phrase she uses, her neurotic misogyny. The church has been leaving women out for 2,000 years. This is truer of the mother church than of we Protestants, but we haven't been doing so great either all these years. And we didn't inherit this neurotic misogyny from Jesus, who had all these splendid relationships with women. We don't notice this in the Gospels because the Gospels don't trumpet this aspect of his personality, sort of just threaded through the warp and woof of Jesus' story in the Gospel, that he looked them in the eye. He saw them face to face. He treated them as equals. They must have been astonished by this man. They couldn't have met a man like him ever before in their lives. And maybe that's why the Gospel story of Jesus is bookended by faithful women first at the cradle and last at the cross. And maybe it was Jesus himself who came up with the old joke. What did God say after he made Adam? I can do better than this. God can use anything and anyone to accomplish God's vast intention. Did you know that D-Day was supposed to be on June 5, 1944? General Eisenhower had cranked up 160,000 troops, 12,000 planes, 7,000 boats, had them all ready on June 5. And then this postal clerk from Blacksod Point on the northwestern coast of Ireland submits a weather report. Back then, postal clerks were responsible for collecting weather data and forwarding it to the Allied Command. And so this postal clerk gives this weather report. She's on the northwestern coast of Ireland. First place you can see the weather coming from the west, right? Weather arrives first on the European continent on Ireland's northwestern coast. You can see the winds and the waves. She submits this weather report. She said it's going to storm tonight. The Allied command says, are you sure? She says, I'm sure. They say, okay then, we'll wait a day. June 6, 1944. She was 21 years old, brand new to the job. And historians give her credit for helping to win World War II, the hinge of the 20th century. Her name was Maureen Sweeney, and she died on December 17 at the age of 100. God can use anything and anyone to accomplish God's purposes. And so, in this little genealogy of Matthew, I hope you will see foreshadowed some of the vast and vivid drama that Jesus will live out in his own life sort of a microcosm of Jesus' life. This inclusion of the excluded, this enfranchisement of the disenfranchised, this honoring of the dishonorable, and I hope you'll see this royal but checkered pedigree as a microcosm of God's vivid drama, which despite all the twists and turns and meanderings and dead ends of human connivance, always ends up with God's splendid intention. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen.